This is the Room Now podcast, and you're listening to highlights from the ACR 2020 virtual meeting. Our faculty reporters have been doing videos and recordings so that you can stay up to date. Hope you enjoy these and our panel discussions. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope here at Room Now at ACR 2020, the virtual convergence meeting. I'd like to talk to you about something that will change my practice. So I'd like to ask you, do you actually routinely take a vaccination status and have your immune suppressed patients with RA, lupus, other diseases get vaccinated against uh, pneumococcal pneumonia? This is a common pneumonia. And there were two sessions or two abstracts that are important in a live session, abstracts four, five, six, and four, five, seven. In abstract 456, what they did was they looked at their patients who got pneumococcal vaccination, albeit it might be a different one than what you use in your country. But in general, they vaccinated the patients who were higher morbidity, more comorbidities, more corticosteroid use, things like that. When they looked and matched the vaccinated patients with the unvaccinated patients, they wanted to look at would pneumococcal pneumonia decrease further pneumonias. And they had 595 vaccinated patients with rheumatic diseases and the non-vaccinated references were 103 patients who had infections before vaccination, 48 of the 595 that were vaccinated and 103 of 2379 who were not vaccinated that had had infections prior. Then they looked at the event rate after vaccination for up to 10 years, and they matched on risk factors. And the bottom line is, even though the patients who were vaccinated were higher risk for infection, they had less infection with almost a 50% reduction of infection. They had time to first pneumonia being less. And again, when you match for the variables, this still was statistically significant and clinically relevant. So for me, that That'll change my practice because I really have to go back to my clinic uh, next week and start asking about vaccination status and just getting on with vaccination. The next study was showing us how we could implement this. So abstract 457 was a, a presentation looking at whether or not they could increase pneumococcal vaccination rates in a regular clinical setting. And they did a series of quality improvement implementations. And like anything, if you talk about it, it's more apt to happen with the patient, but if you facilitate it, it's even more likely. So a few things that I do in my practice and will continue to do better is systematically ask annually, ask my high risk, but all my patients with rheumatic diseases over a certain age, such as 40, and look at putting signs up in my clinic room when I'm seeing them non-virtually, also writing a prescription or even better, having the pneumococcal vaccination ready and out of hand. If you need to know more about this, CDC has guidelines for pneumococcal vaccination for our immune suppressed patients. Thank you. I hope you're enjoying ACR 2020 Convergence and uh, follow us at Room Now. And my Twitter is at Janet Burdope. Thanks. Hello everyone, my name is Jeff Sparks. I'm a rheumatologist here in Boston, Massachusetts, and I'm coming with you for Room Now. I'm very pleased uh, that uh, Dr. Jack Cush 
uh, invited me to, to chat about things. Um, so this is day two of ACR. Obviously it's a new experience with the virtual format. Um, and what's, out, what's on everyone's mind, at least related to rheumatology is how COVID has impacted both our meeting and our profession. Uh, I know we don't like to think about it that much, but I think I'll spend this video sort of uh, summarizing some of the key abstracts that I found related to COVID. Um, I think today is actually, um, you know, has a lot of really impactful abstracts that uh, potentially practice changing and certainly our patients are asking a lot of, about a lot of these issues. And the, and the first is whether COVID actually affects rheumatic diseases differently uh, than the general population. And so there's in particular uh, two main abstracts that delved into this question. Uh, the first is a plenary today. This is abstract number 430. This is presented by Dr. Kristen De Silva uh, within a large database that's uh, basically been updated in real time. And these investigators found rheumatic patients infected with COVID and then matched to comparators without COVID. And they really looked to see about hospital outcomes, um, hospitalization, ICU, thrombosis, acute kidney injury, CHF. And actually they found that our rheumatic patients were across the board more likely to have those outcomes compared to general population comparators. The only outcome that was not significantly associated was mortality. This is, a, this is the largest study looking at this. And in a way it's counter to some of our information showing that maybe things were similar. Um, and yeah, I think we all in the back of our minds always wondered whether it's actually a bit more increased and maybe the previous studies were just unpowered to see that. Uh, so this does appear that our patients might be a slightly increased for worse outcomes. It's not clear exactly why, and obviously there's some heterogeneity within diseases, our medications, um, but I did think this was a fairly definitive study. Um, along those same lines, another abstract presented as a late breaker, abstract L01, Pretty similar methods, a smaller sample size. I'll mention that I'm actually a co-senior author on this study. So this was finding patients at partners here in Boston, uh, which includes Brigham Women's Hospital, Mass General Hospital, finding all of the infected uh, patients with rheumatic diseases, comparing those to general population comparators, looking for outcomes. Uh, the difference for this one is that um, we also did find an increased risk, particularly for mechanical ventilation, However, that increased risk for uh, rheumatic diseases actually went away later in the pandemic. So as we've gone on, as we've learned more about the virus, as we've learned how to treat it, um, it does seem that maybe this increased risk for rheumatic diseases might be, the, the playing field might be leveling, um, which is, uh, I think, encouraging now that our capacities are better, treatments are better, maybe our patients actually will have pretty similar outcomes when it comes down to it. Um, some other things that obviously are not on people's minds are, are what are the factors that predispose patients to poor outcomes. You know, one that's been written about a lot in the general population are race and ethnicity that hasn't really been delved into within the rheumatic disease population until now. Uh, abstract uh, number 0006, uh, look to see whether race and ethnicity was associated with poor COVID outcomes within rheumatic disease population. This was a Global Rheumatology Alliance uh, and it did show that uh, compared to whites, uh, pe uh, uh, black patients as well as uh, Hispanic patients were at, uh, had increased risk for poor outcomes. Um, and then we start thinking about other disease characteristics that might 
change things. Um, in particular, whether targeted therapies might uh, increase risk, either actually ha have a, a better out, uh, hospital course or maybe even a worse hospital course. Um, there's been some previous studies showing that targeted therapies actually have improved outcomes, um, but those are obviously pretty heterogeneous with different um, mechanisms of action. Uh, and then a uh, abstract number 14 actually looks to try to disentangle some of the mechanisms of actions of biologics to see whether that could affect COVID outcomes. Uh, and that showed that perhaps rituxan does have a particular increased risk for poor outcomes. So even though that's a targeted medication, obviously it really turns off an important part of the immune system, particularly related to viruses. Um, so I do think it is it is something to, to, to think about for our patients on rituxan. And obviously it's got a long half-life. So even if you wanted to switch it or stop it, or patients were worried about it, you know, the drug is still in their system. So uh, that's something else to keep in mind. Uh, speaking of uh, DMARD changes, I think we've all wondered exactly what's happening at home. Abstract L05, a late breaker, delved into what happened at home as far as DMARD changes. I think it really told us what we already thought, that patients really are changing things. They are um, you know, wary to continue medications. If they think that they're in, in uh, disease control, they might be more likely to skip some doses. Um, so this is definitely something that I think is on a lot of people's mind, a lot of patients' minds. And then the other thing are the social distancing behaviors. The, do the, does this affect patients with rheumatic disease uh, differently than the general population? And is this why it's hard to find differences? Uh, so late breaker L02 delved into this and as expected, certainly patients with particular underlying rheumatic diseases, patients who are particularly frail or vulnerable, patients on potent immunosuppression certainly do seem to be more likely to stay at home, to wear masks, to socially distance. Um, and I think this is really just quantifying really what we have thought all along. Um, but this does give you stuff to talk about to patients in their clinic. So all in all, I think this has been a, you know, really obviously insightful meeting. COVID's changed everything and we're really getting data to understand patient outcomes, understanding the heterogeneity within rheumatic diseases and how that could affect outcomes. Uh, and then understanding, you know, whether things like rituxan um, put people at particular risk um, and how patients are behaving at home. Um, so I'll be looking forward to more videos and telling you uh, my thoughts about some of the highlights of the meeting. Uh, we'll see if some more COVID abstracts come up, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll think about some other themes for future videos. Uh, so again, thanks for your attention uh, and thanks to Room Now for the opportunity. Hi, ACR 2020. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate coming to you from my home in West Palm Beach, Florida. Dr. Vladimir Lyarsky discussed 11 pearls for outpatient billing and coding from ACR session 3S017. Now, 11 is great, but I wanna take a couple of minutes to highlight just a few of these for your importance. Number one, a new patient is someone you have never seen or with whom you have not had a visit in three years or longer from the actual date of visit. And this includes inpatient visits. So just remember that. Number two, an alternative strategy for your HPI is actually listing the problems and then adding a brief separated history for each of those particular problems. 
that you can do instead of the novel-esque storytelling, which I like to do. So consider this for your charting purposes. Number three, in order to gain points for record review or vaccination records, reviewing labs, imaging, or taking history from another person who's in the room post-COVID after um, obviously all of this, but from another person who's in the room, you can also make sure and you need to do this. You need to make sure that you state the context and the date of all of that information. It's not enough to just state that you did this. Number four, I'm gonna call these easy points. Easy points, social, family, and smoking history. All of these you need to include in your HPIs, or pardon me, not in your HPI, but in your actual documentation, because you can be penalized if you forget them. Underbilling to CMS is just the same as overbilling, so don't do it. Overall, remember that good medicine does not imply good billing and vice versa. So these are just a few quick tips that I learned from Dr. Lyowski, um, Lyarski, pardon me. For more information and news from ACR Converge, be sure to visit us at roomnow.com and follow me on Twitter at UpToTate. Good evening, I'm Jonathan Kay from the University of Massachusetts Medical School in Worcester. And I have here several colleagues from the Rheumatoid Arthritis Faculty for Room Now. Uh, it is Saturday, November 7th, and we've all spent a day, the second day of ACR Convergence 2020, sitting in our offices at home, watching our computers. And the, there have been a number of interesting presentations. So I have here David Liu from Australia, Eric Dine from Baltimore, Sheila Reyes from the Philippines, Jeff Sparks from Boston, Richard Conway from Ireland, and Morale from Cleveland. So we have representation from both blue states and red states and uh, allies of the United States. So uh, we've all been attending the ACR Convergence. Uh, David, let's start with you. What abstracts piqued your interest today? Well, there was one on the poster floor that I found uh, quite interesting. It was from Leeds uh, and Paul Emery's group. And they've done over time a lot of work in the space regarding um, clinically suspect arthralgias. So these patients with musculoskeletal symptoms, inflammatory, sounding arthralgias um, who are ACPA positive. And the question has come about, uh, I mean, over a whole series of different things, what should we be doing in these patients? Well, um, this looked in particular at the value of plain film x-rays. And that might not sound like a big deal, but I guess we shouldn't be doing more investigations than we need to. I think we've, we're thinking more about over-investigation. And then also really thinking about, yeah, how does this change our management? So they looked at x-rays done in these patients to see whether they predicted um, predicted uh, clinical synovitis in the future. So essentially, we're able to predict what might look like uh, the progression to inflammatory arthritis in the future. Uh, and what they saw firstly was that um, only 4% of that overall cohort of clinically ACPA positive, clinically su um, suspect arthralgias had erosions. But more importantly, uh, the presence of erosions didn't predict whether a patient would go on to develop an inflammatory arthritis or not. So that's really challenged uh, my thinking about what to do with these patients. I think we often feel a little bit vulnerable. We, we know that we probably shouldn't treat them. Uh, we we're not really sure what to do about with them. 
And perhaps sometimes we order an x-ray out of desperation as not knowing what to do. And I don't think that necessarily adds anything at this, at this point. There was another, I think it was a poster that came out of uh, Daniel Alataha's group in Vienna that looked at patients who had erosions and joint space narrowing. And they looked at a cohort of patients from Vienna, over 700 patients, and they found that joint space narrowing preceded the development of erosions and that seropositivity and seronegativity had nothing to do with uh, progression. Uh, they also found that patients with baseline damage were more likely to progress. That finding in itself, it's not terribly novel, uh, but the fact that joint space narrowing precedes erosions suggests that cartilage damage might be a process either independent of or possibly related to uh, the bone loss that you see uh, in rheumatoid arthritis. So, uh, Eric, how yeah. about you? So I, I was just going to add on to that. I thought that um, that poster was interesting with um, looking looking at those patients with, with the bone erosions because, I mean, it was only 4% of the patients, so the number was, was 17 patients. So, I mean, one of my takeaways from that was just that if you have um, if you have arthralgias without synovitis, even if you're CCP positive, there were just so few patients in that group that it's pretty reassuring that they're not likely to have erosion. So you should get the radiographs. And particularly, I think 70% of them, 65% of them were in the feet. So making sure you're, you are imaging the feet if you're going to do images, but it's pretty reassuring that so few of them had erosions. I, I don't know... Um, you know, the, the finding that, that you can't really predict with it, just because the number was so small, I think it's harder to interpret, um, you know, moving forward, how to treat those patients. Sure. The point that you make about uh, looking at the feet is very important. There are patients that have no erosive pain in the hands and wrists, but have erosions in the feet. So always get those foot films uh, when you're working up your patient with rheumatoid arthritis. Sheila, what about you? Yeah, um, well... Uh, basically, it's uh, we've all been interested in the same abstracts uh, on biomarkers. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, well, uh, aside from that, aside from the joint space narrowing and the x-rays, um, there are also interesting abstracts on rheumatoid factor using the RF titers. And one particularly that piqued my interest was that about the anti-peptidyl um, arginine deaminase antibodies, the anti-PAD antibodies where they saw a third of patients that were at risk for RA and a third of patients with clinically suspect arthralgias were reported to have these antibodies. And so you see here possible implic um, implications uh, as a predictive tool of um, these antibodies. So uh, we'll, I'm excited to hear more about that. And again, we see here how there's an increasing trend toward focusing on the identifications of patients at risk for disease progression and who would benefit from early intervention. Um, I'd also like to add that there was the session on difficult RA, uh, difficult to treat RA, which was equally engaging, um, which mentioned or talked about ILD, refractory disease, and liver disease. So now that that three-letter uh, term ILD came up. Let's turn yeah. to Jeff Sparks. Uh, uh, if you'll forgive me, I'm going to not talk about ILD, and I'm actually going to talk about an abstract from yesterday. I was moderating yesterday, and so this morning, the you know, beauty of a virtual meeting, I could basically attend as if I was there. So 
Uh, I wanted to talk about what I thought was one of the highlights, which was uh, DMARDs and incident dementia risk within RA patients. I mean, I think this panel would all agree that RA is particularly interesting to study given how inflammation is important in you know, every organ system uh, and how it can tell us about how the pathogenesis of other types of diseases. It's also very interesting to repurpose our drugs for kind of different reasons, even though we're prescribing them to treat uh, joint pain, we, not, we all know that there's probably systemic inflammation, there's inflammation in other organ systems. Uh, so this was led by Dr. Sebastian Satui and colleagues. Uh, it was a Medicare database, so really obviously big numbers, and they really looked at drug classes, biologics versus conventional synthetic DMARDs, uh, and pretty remarkable uh, reduced uh, hazard ratio for incident dementia risk. Obviously, it's a, it's a Claims database study, so it's not uh, you know causal. There's obviously more work that needs to be done, but I think this is a really novel path, both for our patients as well as the general population, about how um, our drugs might affect neuroinflammation. Since it was a claims database, they weren't able to assess the effect of these drugs on inflammation in individual patients or even across the population. It's interesting to speculate that perhaps chronic inflammation drives amyloid formation. We know that uh, amyloid deposits in the brain in Alzheimer's disease, uh, and I wonder if there might be some increased amyloid formation, SAA, in these patients that's being suppressed better by TNF inhibitors than uh, by conventional synthetic DMARDs. It'll be very interesting for someone in neuroimmunology to pursue the topic of trying to work out mechanism. Uh, perhaps some animal models will be relevant. That's so, why RA leads the way. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, Richard, how about you? Yeah, I, I found a couple of uh, interesting posters in the real world uh, data session. And the first of those was by Dr. Movahadi and colleagues from Toronto. And they were looking at time to discontinuation of patients on either tofacitinib or TNF inhibitors, um, either as monotherapy or co-prescribed metotrexate. Um, so coming back to what was talked about in, in the great debate and, and what should be our, our first line biologic in some ways. Um, and what they found was that uh, tofacitinib, it didn't seem to matter in time to discontinuation, whether you're on metotrexate or not. Whereas with TNF inhibitors, uh, time to discontinuation was longer um, if patients were co-prescribed metotrexate. Um, and the second very interesting uh, uh, poster I saw was from Dr. Dalal from Brown University. Um, and they were looking at patients with rheumatoid arthritis, elderly patients, so over 85. Um, and they found that 85% of those patients in the first year after they were diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis did not start on a DMARD. And to me, that, that's quite a scary thing. We've 85% of this population not on an appropriate treatment for the rheumatoid arthritis. Um, be interesting to explore further why that might be. Absolutely, and try to come up with interventions to hasten the referral of patients for appropriate DMARD therapy. Morale, you're, you're muted. All right, can you hear me now? Absolutely. Okay, 
Well, I was really excited about Abstract 0952, which was recently actually just presented at the five o'clock hour, 5.20 p.m. by Dr. Pooja Khanna at the University of Michigan. It's titled Reducing Immunogenicity of Peglodicase or the Recipe Study with Concomitant Use of Mycophenolate Mofetil in Patients with Refractory Gout. It was a phase two double-blind randomized control trial, and its primary objectives were to assess the feasibility and efficacy of MMF to achieve a serum urate level of less than six at week 12. It also had another primary outcome of uh, assessing the incidence and type of adverse events potentially associated with MMF. And the results were actually really intriguing in that it did show at week 12 uh, reduction in serum urate in 19 of 22 of the patients in the MMF pyglodicase arm. So 86% in the MMF arm achieved the primary outcome at week 12 comparatively to the placebo arm, where only 40% met that outcome. Even more so, they stopped treatment with MMF at week 12, and thereafter, they saw still a sustained benefit maintained at 24 weeks in the MMF arm. So then the question becomes, were there any changes in the um, in terms of the adverse event profile. And actually the estimated rates of adverse events were comparable between the two groups. And even more so interestingly, they saw a reduction in the number of gout flares every month in the, in the MMF arm. So I think this is potentially practice changing. It's a small sample size. So this data should be validated in a larger study but it's really exciting stuff. Yeah, absolutely, that's a big problem uh, with use of that drug. Uh, peglodicase in treating gout, uh, the potential immunogenicity and loss of efficacy. Uh, mm -hmm. So that, that's an interesting study. So uh, no one has mentioned seen. I think uh, the plenary abstract today, we don't have to go into it because uh, I think uh, Richard filmed an individual uh, discussion of that, uh, that presentation and I did as well. And perhaps we have a third. So if you go to room now, uh, you'll be able to see several discussions of that plenary abstract. So we can probably avoid uh, discussing it now, but uh, I'd like to bring up a, a post or oral presentation that was given by Elisabetta Siakcha from Cospitalis' group at uh, the William Harvey Research Institute in London. Uh, as almost everyone knows, uh, Pitalis' group has has divided rheumatoid arthritis uh, into several groups based on synovial biopsy. And what uh, Elisabetta did was she looked at network uh, analysis to work out uh, networks of protein interactions in each of the different subtypes. She then subtracted from those networks the common features so that she had differential networks uh, for each of the three different pathotypes. And then she was able to come up with a way of associating a response to treatment with conventional synthetic DMARDs uh, with these various biomarkers. This is very similar to the uh, commercially available uh, tool that's been developed by Cypher, uh, which is a genetic profile that predicts non-response to TNF inhibitors uh, and potentially might save money by choosing which patients should not be treated with a TNF inhibitor so that you can pick patients uh, who will respond. It would be very interesting if this work from uh, the Pitsalis group could identify patients who might respond inadequately to methotrexate 
early on before waiting for a six month trial or a four month trial. Uh, and you could start biologic therapy or other agents, either in addition to methotrexate or instead uh, in that group. So using this kind of uh, non-biased uh, machine learning to understand networks uh, in different pathologic subtypes of rheumatoid arthritis might lead to a clinically useful tool. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think the exciting bit about this is that we're getting to the point where we uh, um, previously, I guess we thought about it phenotypically and we've got a whole bunch of diseases which we label as rheumatoid arthritis. Then we start getting to this deep phenotyping and then something which is actually potentially meaningful by the bedside to be able to have a, have a tool where we can try and unravel that a little bit more. Uh, at the moment, I still feel like we're a lot of the time guessing in terms of what the response is going to be. So to be able to have another further step, uh, I mean, those diagrams are beautiful today. Absolutely. Uh, I sat in on the animal model session, the oral presentations at the very end of the day after Tony Fauci's lecture on COVID-19. And Jenny Stavra, who's a junior faculty member in our department uh, at UMass, gave a presentation about the effect of Schnurri 3, which is a gene in mice uh, that seems to suppress osteoblast function in an animal model of rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, and what she found was that by using small inhibitory RNA to suppress Schnorri 3, she was able to restore osteoblast function and through uh, linkage with osteoclast development, suppress osteoclast function. So interestingly, there's a, humans have a Schnorri 3 gene that's about 80% homologous to that in mice. So there might be an opportunity to try using an adenovirus vector to introduce an inhibitory RNA to downregulate Schnurri 3 and perhaps increase bone formation through coupling decreased bone destruction in rheumatoid arthritis. Still not ready for prime time, but a very interesting concept introduced in the animal model session. So any other abstracts that uh, piqued uh, anyone's interest today? There was an abstract that uh, Bill Robinson presented about uh, fine specificity of uh, autoantibody, which predicted response to abatacept uh, and methotrexate, as I recall. Eric, did you review that abstract? Yeah, so that was, uh, it was interesting. They looked at exactly the fine specificity ACPA showing that you can use them to help um, predict therapy that those patients had a better response on on dual therapy with abatacid and, and methotrexate compared to methotrexate monotherapy alone in in you know all patients were were zero positive RA in that group. But specifically, if we if we're looking at these fine specific, fine specificity, I, um, I'm trying to recall exactly what they specified which um, ACPA they were looking at, and um, you could see that you can use this. To, help predict outcomes as to how patients are, are going to do. So it's just incredible to think about that we might get to the point, you think about in, in myositis, we're so specific with which antibodies and, and the phenotype based on that and what what drugs we use as a result of that. You know, this is just an indication that, that patients with, with this phenotype or with this marker, maybe they're the ones that should be on, on the dual therapy or they should be on the certain therapy. So we're really getting to personalized medicine now, uh, even more so this year. Uh, I listened to the Hinch lecture this year, 
uh, Gerd Burmester from Charité in Berlin gave a very nice historical overview, a tour through the development of treatment for rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, and I would recommend that session highly to those of you listening to this podcast or this uh, video on, on Room Now. Uh, Gerd really showed the development from the early days when Hench and Kendall uh, first pioneered the use of compound E uh, to treat rheumatoid arthritis in 1948, up through the development of oral uh, biologic equivalent drugs, the targeted synthetic DMARDs, uh, and talked about all of the people uh, in rheumatology uh, who contributed to these developments. So a very nice historical overview. So as we're nearing the end of the time for this panel discussion, uh, I thank each and every one of you for participating and the panelists. And uh, please go to Room Now for more information to see individual faculty discussions of uh, presentations. And please come back tomorrow when we will reassemble to review tomorrow's uh, day at ACR Convergence 2020. Stay safe and well. I'm Jonathan Kay for David Liu, Eric Dine, Sheila Reyes, Jeffrey Sparks, Richard Conway, and Morales. Uh, good night. Hello, everyone. I'm Richard Conway, reporting from ACR 2020 uh, for Room Now, and I'm joined today uh, for an interview um, by Dr. Sinead McGuire. Uh, to talk about her study, uh, Pregnancy in Axial Spondyl Arthritis, a systematic review um, and meta-analysis, which was presented on Sunday um, in the poster session. It's abstract number 1323. Uh, thank you for joining us, Dr. McGuire. Um, can you tell us uh, first why you, can you tell us first why you do this study? Sure. So um, I think it's an important area to cover because um, typically at the time of diagnosis, um, most women with um, axial spondyloarthropathy will be in their childbearing years. And pregnancy is a major life event for any woman, but for women with AXPA, it comes with a lot of extra questions and concerns. And when you look at the research that's already been done in this area, um, unfortunately, there's not a clear consensus in terms of the, our pregnancy outcomes in AXPA associated with um, more pregnancy complications or fetal complications, and what actually happens to disease activity um, during pregnancy. So because this is an area that I think is very impactful for um, our patients going through pregnancy, um, I put together this systematic review just to pool all the um, research that's been done in this area to try and see if we could pick up um, true prevalence, um, prevalency trends to inform our patients um, going into pregnancy. Fantastic. And that's probably going to become even more important with hopefully the improvements in the diagnostic delay and, and diagnosing people earlier when they're, when they're even at a younger age, um, particularly in women. Um, and can you tell us what your results showed? Yeah, so our primary outcome was looking at pregnancy complications <clears throat> um, in Axpa. And the most um, significant outcome that we had was actually looking at, um, was in cesarean sections. And so um, Axpa pregnancies had a much higher prevalence of cesarean sections compared to control pregnancies. Um, and this was significant even after we broke it down into emergency and elective cesarean sections. And you might say, well, the prevalence of Axpa of um, cesarean sections is rising globally, and that's for lots of different reasons. But what we did show is that 
Despite that, there still is much higher prevalence of cesarean sections in AXPA compared to controlled pregnancies. Um, and then on top of that, there also was a trend towards a higher prevalence of a number of other complications, um, including intrauterine growth restriction, preeclampsia, and then also preterm birth on sensitivity analysis. Um, we also captured um, prevalence of fetal complications, and all the complications that we actually captured in our analysis had a trend towards a higher prevalence in axial pregnancies compared to controls. Um, disease activity was a little bit harder to capture, but we did find that a very high proportion of axial women experienced active disease during their pregnancy. So these results certainly are a cause for concern and very much a call for research, um, further research in this area so we can understand why is this happening, um, what can we do to address this a little um, better, um, and how do we inform our patients about this. Um, so. That's fantastic. It's really, really interesting uh, results and very, as you say, very important uh, to bring that all together. Um, what do you think the next steps are in this area? Um, I think first and foremost, um, it's going to be getting more research in this area. And I think one of the um, best uh, potential resources for this is going to be looking at large registries. Um, because they are a way to get information, a large volume of information very quickly. And I'm actually doing work with the Ankylosing Spondylitis Registry of Ireland. Um, and we have developed now a section on pregnancy as part of our registry. So for all women being entered into the registry, we're now capturing information on pregnancy um, in terms of pregnancy and fetal outcomes, um, breastfeeding, just to get more information on this topic for our patients. So when we sit down and we have conversations with our patients, we can say, this is data from our own population. But using registry um, data also means that we have a large volume of clean data. So it makes it easier to compare between different registries. So hopefully that will help us to um, better understand this area um, and hopefully um, help our patients um, in this area much more. That's fantastic. Thank you very much, Dr. McGuire. And thank you, everyone, for listening in. Please remember uh, to log in to Room Now uh, for more coverage um, and updates from ACR 2020. Hello, uh, my name is Jeff Sparks in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, an ACR ambassador. And I'm happy to get the opportunity to report for Room Now as well. Uh, I'm here with my good friend, Dr. Janet Pope, and we're going to talk about uh, rheumatoid arthritis risk factors and early RA, two of our favorite topics. Yeah. Hi, Jeff. Hi. Um, so I think most we want to mostly focus this on two of our you know, data sets that we do a lot of our studies in, some of mine are in the nurses' health studies, and, and yours are in CATCH. So I wonder if you could just tell people about CATCH first. Absolutely. So the CATCH cohort is um, an incident cohort of suspected or proven early rheumatoid arthritis. So symptom onset a year or less with um, proper, um, suspe sorry, proper suspicion of RA. And we have about 4,000 patients. And sometimes we have less because we migrated the database and asked different questions. But it's multi-site um, uh, throughout many provinces in Canada. And it's a rich data set that that we collect uh, data and uh, the patients do as well. We do freeze serum at some sites as well. Great. Uh, and I'll fill you in on the nurses' health studies again. So this is a, a nationwide studies that started actually in 1976. So over 40 years of prospective follow-up. And there's actually two cohorts, nurses one and nurses two, which was started in 1989. 
Um, each of them have about 120,000 women. So we got over a quarter million uh, women who have had prospective follow-up for over 40 years. And uh, we've been identifying incident rheumatic diseases, particularly rheumatoid arthritis and, and lupus uh, within those uh, cohorts. And one of the strengths is that there's really, really high follow-up uh, patients of uh, people, they're not patients yet necessarily. Nurses uh, are really, um, you know, uh, follow up with all their questionnaires. So we're able to answer, you know, what things happen prospectively prior to disease onset. Um, so it's been a, a real wealth of, of information. And I think that's a real strength that you actually have um, factors that truly predate symptom onset, because I know you've looked at depression, you've looked at and, and others in your team and group have looked at healthy living. Can you tell me about some of those things? Sure. So um, we have some abstracts, this, this ACR 20 to, to talk about. Um, you know, some of these, I'm, you know, I'm a co-author on all of these, I'll say. Um, you know, the first one that we were excited about is related to passive smoking. As you probably know, inhalants are thought to be really important in RA pathogenesis. And in the Nurses Health Study 2, they really asked about passive smoking throughout the entire life course. Uh, so this was analysis that was led by me and an and a instructor in medicine, Dr. Kazuki Yoshida. And we really looked to see whether there was an important time in life when put passive smoking might impact rheumatoid arthritis. So we looked at uh, maternal smoking. So when the nurse is actually in the womb, we looked at uh, passive smoking as a childhood, looking at whether uh, they lived with a parent. And then we also looked at passive smoking throughout adulthood, living with other smokers. And what we found is that there was a pretty specific association of passive smoking in childhood to predispose to later adult onset seropositive rheumatoid arthritis. And our, our, our speculation is, is that this could sort of be the first trigger, you know, put epigenetic changes perhaps that might set up patients to have uh, develop rheumatoid arthritis in the future. Um, so some other abstracts that we're pretty excited about are related to lifestyle. So we're also interested to see whether lifestyle factors affect RA risk. And again, these factors have been collected, you know, for many years prior to the clinical onset. So uh, there were two sets of analyses that are presented at this meeting. Uh, the first is related to RA, which is being led by uh, Dr. Jill Hahn. And really what we're looking at is uh, five particular health behaviors, obesity, diet, smoking, physical activity, alcohol consumption, and whether this is related to incident RA risk. And what we found is that those who are really healthy uh, do seem to have uh, a, a much lower risk of rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, and uh, in a, a similar analysis that was uh, led by Dr. May Choi, um, she looked to see whether these factors were related to systemic lupus onset. And this one actually was particularly uh, associated where these factors could really explain up to 50% of lupus risk, which is really quite impressive. So I think it really emphasizes that healthy lifestyle could have some alterations in the immune system, systemic inflammation, and really is quite important from a public health standpoint. Yes, and it seemed like it was explaining maybe one third of the risk of RA too. So I think the take home is we right. can drink alcohol if that uh, suits you and you're not against that for other reasons, that we need to exercise <laughs> regularly, that the Mediterranean diet's good, not smoking, and then things that weren't really looked at, I guess, avoiding stress and all that would be helpful and uh, mm -hmm. probably not living with a smoker and choosing your parents wisely so that they don't smoke and maybe choosing them because genetic risk is still there. Yeah. 
it's all nature and nurture, but uh, anything right. we can modify to improve does seem well to be it. important. That's right. And it just links in with all the comorbidities or multimorbidities that our patients might have too. If you have some of these lifestyle features that are for the better, uh, again, probably never too late because mm -hmm. um, certainly some studies show that a Mediterranean diet uh, exercise and weight loss can help things like psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis and a little bit of data emerging in RA as well. So there's a lot of linkages with um, we are what we eat and what the environment is. So, so I know a lot of catches related to, you know, early RA, particularly remission. I wonder how you think about how these factors relate to some patient reported outcomes that might uh, affect patients' uh, chances to get into remission. Right. So we have found indeed uh, that remission is, is less if you're overweight and, and the least amount if you're obese. Time to remission, it takes longer. The proportion in remission are less and sustained remission is less as well. The other thing is we're presenting that even people in remission, irrespective of lifestyle, um, sustained remission is very difficult to achieve. And over the next two years, um, a large proportion of those who are in remission at one point in time aren't still there a couple of years later, which I think talks about um, the evolution of RA and drug resistance and possibly adherence and lifestyle factors too. We have to really disentangle why each individual might be losing their remission. What's really fascinating when you think about what all your patient has gone through once they come to see you in clinic, and it's not necessarily just about the drug you, you pick and um, there's really a lot that goes into you know, what, how they're gonna do and how they're gonna perceive things. So really a lot more to, to un disentangle, if you will. That's right. I think for research and I think some of the clinical take homes are um, that it's so important that patients uh, um, feel that you're listening to them. Uh, there's some care gap pathway uh, uh, issues that are going on that if uh, a patient is more apt to be adherent, if they buy in, if they tolerate the meds, and if they think that you're actually listening and have their best interests at heart. So you're right. There's so many things that go into our art or our practice of medicine and someday practice will make perfect. All right, Janet, I think we could talk forever about this. So uh, we'll spare the viewers more, any more. Um, thanks again to the room now viewers and uh, hope everyone's having a great meeting. Thanks again. Thank you.